Let me encourage you to remain standing, if you're able, for our second reading of Scripture. This comes from just a few chapters over, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Again, if you're using the Blue Pew Bible this morning, that is on page 1046. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. And let's continue to give our attention. This is God's inerrant word. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared... Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated. And now let's seek the Lord's illumination on his word. Let us pray. Our God, we have stood at attention while your word is read. And now we ask that we might sit with illumination as your word is proclaimed. Our God, we ask that you would, by your spirit, fill our hearts, fill our minds, open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things. Transform us in the truth. Our God, your word is truth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's interesting that uh, Jesus begins this parable where the parable begins by someone in the crowd saying to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. We just came back from a week um, spending some time with extended family in Pennsylvania. And I, many years ago when I lived in Pennsylvania still, I remember hearing a story that was very similar to the background of this parable there was a family um, in, the, in the area where I grew up, actually, an extended family that had a beautiful, a beautiful piece of property on the top of a mountain. In fact, when I was a kid, I actually went camping there one time because they were distantly, kind of indirectly related to us. And this family has wonderful property, yeah, irreplaceable, not the kind of thing you can get now, right? Have you ever been in a place like that? Beautiful mountaintop property. There was a cabin. There was a pavilion. And it was a wonderful place to gather and have holiday gatherings. And then the, the paterfamilias, the, the, the head of the family, the, the father, he died. And what do you think happened to the property? Do you think all the, all the heirs got together and said, you know, we really ought to set up a trust so that we could keep this property in the family and really enjoy it? I wish. You know what happened instead? They went to court, they litigated it. 
and they fought and they clawed over getting their share of the property. They went to the courts and said, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And you know what happened? They ended up selling the property. And I ask you to reflect on that as we go into this passage today. Was it worth the cost? Yes, probably they all got a check for some amount of money after the lawyers got their share. But the property was lost, and how much relational damage was done in process? You see, we might think it's just a matter of property, as this man coming to Jesus might have thought. But there are much deeper and much bigger things at stake, even with something as small as a piece of stuff. And notice what Jesus does as, as they come, as this man comes to him, or this, we don't actually know if it was a man or a woman, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Notice what Jesus does as he takes the question and he says, first of all, I'm not an arbitrator, but then he turns the conversation from a question of property to a question of eternity. And he says in verse 15, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We need to read that last part again. One's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. My friends, you might think, this is not a text for Christmas or New Year's. I say to you, yes, it is, because we are in a season that is particularly fraught with this very temptation as we give and receive gifts, which is in itself a wonderful and enjoyable thing, yes? But with that comes the temptation to fall into thinking that our life does consist in the abundance of our possessions. And Jesus says, take care. That's not true. And in in telling us what life is not about, the Lord also then raises the question by contrast. What is life? actually about. And then he tells them a parable, which we are going to unpack. And as we go into this parable, I want to encourage all of us. We are at the end of one year. We are going into a new year. And I hope that all of you take the opportunity every, every year around this time to really just pause and reflect, to look back on your life in the previous year, to look ahead to your life in the next year and ask, what has my life been about in 2023? And what will my life be about? What are my goals? What are, whether you do formal resolutions or not, I hope you're thinking, how am I intentionally going to live in the next year? What is my life going to be about? And to aid us in that process, we're going to look this morning at Jesus' warning and the parable. And in seeing the warning, we're going to see there's actually really good news as well. And so, kids, if you've got your outlines, it's going to be a little interesting this time. You know, in the past, Pastor Montgomery used to spoon-feed you all the sub-points. Well, by the way, you should know, kids, you were the only church that I ever did that for. When I would go out and visit other places here in Ohio, they didn't get this. It was just for you. That's how much I love you. But we all need, we're all a little older now, right? And we're all going to grow up a little bit. And so some of these, you might be able to get the exact words, but some of them, I'm not going to say the exact words. And it's going to be up to you to think and listen carefully so that you can fill them in. So let's go in and we're going to look at the warning of Jesus. Jesus is warning us about the danger of prosperity. And the first thing he's going to warn us, he's going to warn us about how prosperity or covetousness can ruin us. 
how it can ruin us. And he gives us a definition of covetousness right there in verse 15. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Well, what does that mean? Well, he defines it right there for us. Covetousness is the belief that life is about having lots of stuff. That's a really good basic definition of what covetousness is. It is the belief that that more stuff means more life. More stuff means better life. If I have more stuff, I'll be happier. And the goal of a life that is centered on stuff, Jesus also gives us a great example in the words of the rich fool in verse 19. What does the man say? He says, I'll say to my soul, soul, you've got ample goods stored up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. This is the goal of a life of covetousness, to have a lot of stuff and to chillax for many years and to eat, drink, and be merry. Does that resonate at all in our culture? Does it resonate at all in our own hearts? This is not just an ancient Near Eastern phenomenon, is it? We, we, have, we have something in our own society today called the American dream, which is not, if we're honest, not that much different, is it? And we all know, for sure, we all know people who are just, this is their life. Their life is aimed at getting more stuff and at gaining more comfort and hoarding it, laying it all up, making a plan so that they can, at some point in their life, say to themselves, relax, you've got it made, you're financially independent, eat, drink, and be merry. And you can actually do it. You know, when Jesus warns us, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself? He's not saying that's impossible. He's saying you actually can gain the whole world. You can gain what you're looking for. But what are the consequences? And if we look carefully at the inner dialogue and the inner monologue of the rich fool, we see some really horrifying consequences. The first is that living for stuff, living for self, living for prosperity makes us extraordinarily self-centered. Look again at verses 17 and 19. He has, he has more than he ever had. His land prospers, and what's his response? How does he respond to that? He says, what shall I do? I've got nowhere to store my crops. I don't know what I'm going to do with all this blessing. He says, I know. I'll build bigger barns. I'll put all my stuff. I'll hoard it even more. That's an extraordinarily self-centered reaction, is it not? No, no, even, no even thought. Sorry, that was bad grammar. There wasn't even a single thought toward blessing others. He doesn't say, well, you know, I could help my neighbor. I could help that poor man that I know. Or I could even my neighbors who aren't so poor, I could just throw a feast and invite them to come and thank God. with me. None of that. Nobody else is in view here. God is not in view. Neighbors are not in view. It's all about who? It's all about him. All about his stuff, extraordinarily, it warps us. Living for things warps us. It it curves our hearts, as Martin Luther said, in on themselves. And it not only makes us self-centered, it makes us dramatically and darkly self-deceived. If you look again at verses 17 through 19 and count the number of times he uses the word, my. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, 
and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul. Five times he lays claim to ownership. Ownership of what? Things he didn't create. Crops he didn't cause to grow. A soul, a life that he did not create, nor does he keep alive. Who grew his crops? Who gave him life? To whom will he be accountable at the end of his life? He's not thinking about God at all, but God has not forgotten him, as verse 20 reminds us. But this is what happens, my friends. This is how prosperity, how covetousness can ruin us. It makes us increasingly blind. Blind to other people, blind to God, and ultimately, as verse 20 points out, blind to our own mortality. God has to come and remind him, you fool, have you forgotten that your life is going to end? And in fact, the Lord says, it's going to end tonight. How can, how can this be? We all know we're going to die. I, I, I doubt that there's anybody in this room today for whom the news that someday you will die is a grand surprise. Like, what? We all know this, right? Death and taxes, the two inevitable things. How then do we forget? How then does covetousness and prosperity hijack our hearts? Kids, that's the next thing. How does prosperity ensnare us? It ensnares us the way all sin ensnares us. It ensnares us through lies. It tells us the lie that the rich fool is telling himself in verse 19. Prosperity, covetousness tells us the lie that if we have more stuff, we will be comfortable and we will live indefinitely. Look at what he says. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Was that true? What does verse 20 say? No, it wasn't true at all. He didn't have many years. He had moments. But prosperity, covetousness, sin, it lies to us. We know we're going to die, but we still believe the lie. How, how is it that sin can so hijack our hearts? Again, my friends, we've talked about this before, but in this specific case, let's talk about it again. How does covetousness hijack our hearts? How does it gain such power and blind us? Sin gets its power by hijacking God-given desires. And there is in each of us a God-given desire for a good life, for a life of comfort, a life of safety, a life where we don't have to be afraid, where we are beloved and accepted, a life where we could feel what you might call the smile of heaven. Where did that desire come from? It came from when we were created in the Garden of Eden. We were created to live a life under the smile of heaven, of comfort, safety, tending the garden, being in communion with God, feeling that smile of God constantly on our existence. That's a God-given desire. We lost it when we fell into sin and we rebelled against God, but we are promised it again in the new creation. What does Revelation 21 say? It says many things, but one of the things it says is that God will wipe away every tear from our eye, and there will be no more sickness, nor sorrow, nor death, nor sin, because He is making all things new. The smile of heaven is coming again for all who trust in the Lord Jesus. And so the desire is not wrong, but this is what sin does. Sin tells us 
This is what almost, almost every sin, maybe all sin, but at least most sins arise and get their power from telling us that you can have the gift without the giver. That you can have the smile without living before the face of God. And this is how we are ensnared. This is how covetousness gets us. For truly, good gifts from God are tokens, are little tastes of God's goodness. But covetousness and prosperity and sin tells us, forget about God, just take the stuff. Be your own God, be your own heaven, be your own smile. And that is how we are ensnared. My friends, over the past year as you reflect, even over the past week as you've thought about all that cool stuff you got for Christmas, have you been tempted in this way? Have you found more joy in the things than in the one who made all things? Have we not? Have any of us received some gift and said, now my life will really be good. Now I've arrived. Some of us who are older shaking our heads saying, that doesn't work. (laughs) But we still feel it sometimes, don't we? You cannot have the smile without the face of God. And the great lie And the great way in which covetousness ensnares us is to tell us that you can. And by the way, it's not just through things. It can be through relationships. Love, marriage, family, those are wonderful things that we also especially enjoy during this season. But they are not the ultimate good. They are a gift, but without the giver, they too will crumble. Again, I ask us, how have we been ensnared even in the past week? And yet, the Lord Jesus, in his goodness, through these words, reminds us that this world is not all there is and that we need to think deeper. God says to the man, this night your soul was required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Friends, the same question overshadows you and I here today. We read it from Luke chapter 9. What will it profit a man or a woman if you gain the whole world and forfeit yourself. This is not just a question in a parable. This is a question coming for each and every one of us. We too are perishing. We too are dying. When you meet God, your stuff cannot help you. What will happen when that day comes? You might say, well, that's a pretty sober warning. Is there any good news? And there is tremendous good news here. There is tremendous good news. First of all, Jesus is good enough to warn us. Isn't that a kindness of our Lord? As we just go about in a society that is so literally hell-bent on getting more stuff, as we just live in a materialistic world, isn't it a wonderful thing, first and foremost, that Jesus stepped into history and said, hang on, this is not what life's about. There's goodness, there's good news even there. But Jesus didn't just warn us. You know, Jesus fought for us on this very front. The very first temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness. Do you remember? He'd been hungry. He'd been thirsty for 40 days. And the devil comes to him and says, If you are the Son of God, do what? Turn these stones into bread. He was saying to Jesus, Get yourself some good old stuff. Get some gifts. Get some stuff that will make you comfortable. 
And Jesus said, not without the giver. Man does not live by bread alone, but only by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus wouldn't do it. And that means, my friends, that he has fought for you and I. He has fought the sin of covetousness. He resisted the temptation for us. He doesn't just warn us, he fought for us. And he didn't just fight for us. He then died for us. One of the sins for which Jesus was nailed to the cross was the sin of covetousness, the sin of living for stuff. Not his sin, he had no sin. Whose covetousness did Jesus die for? Mine, yours, yesterday, today, tomorrow. You see, the reality is it's not just the rich fool who says the idiotic words of verse 19. You and I, if we're honest, have all said it, and we'll probably say it again. We have all said to our souls, Soul, you have or will have ample goods laid up for many years. Soul, the goal here is to relax and eat and drink and be merry. That's what we say to our souls, if we're honest enough to admit it. But do you know what Jesus said to his soul? He went to the cross and he said to his soul, not relax, but suffer. Not eat, but hunger. Not drink, but thirst. Not be merry, but be cursed. For you and for me. He didn't just fight for us. He died for us. And he didn't just die for us. Then he rose for us. And in rising for us, he opened the door to a life and to a world where that deep desire to feel the smile of heaven is given as a gift. Not by hoarding things and living in a self-centered way, but by giving away our things and giving our hearts to God and giving everything to Him and finding that we are not only not the poorer, but we are infinitely richer. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. Why? So that you by His poverty might become what? Rich. He didn't just die for us. He rose for us. And He didn't just rise for us. He then poured out His Holy Spirit and clothes us with His own Spirit. That same Spirit that resisted covetousness. That same Spirit that did the opposite and gave itself. That same Holy Spirit lives in us. And by that Spirit, we can be changed. Not just when we go to heaven, but even today. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that's the last thing. Not just how prosperity can ruin us, how it ensnares us, not just what Jesus did to rescue us, but then how all this should change us. How should it change us if we believe the gospel as we reflect on these words? Well, first, a couple of really easy ones. First, we ought to remember our Creator. We need to remember God is there. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever he had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is God. We are not. All these things that you have, including all the sweet stuff that you got last Monday, it's not really yours. It's his. You yourself do not belong to yourself. You belong to God. Remember your Creator and also then, number your days. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom, said Psalm 90. My friends, do you realize that as we sit here this morning, comfortable, enjoying one another, enjoying the Lord's Word, that each of us is dying? 
even those of you who are the most newborn, sitting in your, be- sitting in your car seats, hopefully napping quietly or in the nursery, being very well behaved, we're dying. We are getting closer to that moment when we will stand before God and must answer to Him. And Jesus tells us the way to be ready to meet God with joy is not to lay up treasure for ourselves, verse 21, but to be rich toward God. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means the opposite of laying up treasure for ourselves. It doesn't mean necessarily embracing a life of radical poverty. Although, if you're sitting there right now and you heard, oh, good, maybe you are the kind of person who actually needs to embrace a life of radical poverty. It doesn't necessarily mean radical poverty, but it does mean we need to redefine our priorities. What is all of life about, according to the catechism of this church? Man's chief end, the purpose of human existence, is to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. What is all the Bible about? Jesus said it is about loving God and loving your neighbor. This is what everything is for to go further up and further in to the love of God, ourselves and others. This is the purpose of all life. And do you know what that means with regard to our wealth and the treasures and talents and time that God gives us? It means that it is also the purpose of all your money, all your time, all your treasure, all your talents. Not just your tithes and offerings, although we have a responsibility there, but all that we are and have is to be focused on bringing ourselves and others closer and further into the love of God. Now, how do we do that with our wealth? Some of you would really like really specific prescriptions. Instead, I'm going to give you some guardrails. I just came back from Pennsylvania, spent a lot of time on the highway, saw a lot of guardrails. Well, here are some guardrails. Some positive guardrails and some negative guardrails. How do we know whether we're, whether we're rightly using the talents, time, and treasure that God has given us? Some positive indicators. If, you're, if, you, if you sense these things, you're probably living in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. If, if your use of your time, talents, and treasures makes you more thankful, if it makes you more content, if you would not be ashamed to explain to anybody what you're doing, with your wealth, your talent, your time. If you don't feel ashamed to explain what you're doing, you're more thankful, you're more content, it's probably a good sign. On the other hand, what are some negative indicators? If despite all the wealth and all the talent and all the time that God has given you, you find yourself persistently discontent, that's a negative sign. If receiving a gift makes you less generous rather than more generous, if you are seeking to acquire things because you feel insecure, if I don't have these things, nobody will like me. If I don't have these things, my life won't have meaning. Or if you're seeking to acquire and hoard things on the basis of vanity, I just want to look good. Those are very negative signs. If you would be ashamed to stand before God and explain what you're doing with what He's given you, that's a very dark, deleterious, negative sign. You can put it all together like this. Here's the acid test, if you will. Could you take whatever it is you're doing with your life and bring it before Jesus and say, look what I've done, and expect Him to smile? If you can do that, you're on the right track. If you cannot do that, or to the extent that all of us cannot do that, 
We need to repent. There's nothing fancy about it. It's to tell Jesus you're sorry and turn around and go the other way. Because my friends, the truth is life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Life is about the smile of heaven. Stuff, even the coolest stuff, guys, things, relationships, trips, experiences, all that stuff, you know what it ultimately is? Stuff is just stuff. And stuff lies. But where stuff lies, Jesus actually supplies. That deep desire that stuff taps into to lie to you, Jesus gives you for free. Jesus says, I will give you the smile of heaven. You will be forgiven. You will be accepted. You will be safe forever. And if you believe that promise, if you take him at his word, you put your heart in his hands, then you can say to all that stuff, because of Jesus, God smiles on me forever. What can you give? What can you take? If I have more things, fine, I'll use them. If I don't have more things, no problem. My life does not consist in the abundance of things. I have the smile of heaven. As we go into this new year, my friends, take a hard look at the end of verse 15. Life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Repent. And going into 2024, turn the other way and live into the smile of God. Live to invite others into the smile of Christ. Use all that he's given you to that end. This is the big promise of this text, that Jesus offers us a smile that not only frees us from the lies of stuff, it will never fail us. Do you believe his promise? Amen. Let us pray. Our God, we confess to you that your words are timely particularly at this season of the year, but not limited to this season of year. We ourselves are so easily swept up in a tide of materialism and consumerism. We ourselves have all been guilty at some point or another of believing that life does consist in the abundance of our possessions. Forgive us, Lord, we pray. Help us to see that in Christ we have nothing more nor nothing less than we need. That we have everything in Him so that we can get off this hamster wheel of discontent and self-centeredness and rest in the hands of Jesus, not only in the new year to come, but forever. We ask in His name. Amen.